I love sausage. Shocking. Dizzying. How did this happen? When I bring the lumber, it's all about the whole. I diddled uh, some pole uh, over the weekend. Right. Not me so honia. I did have an accident with a menorah. Here we go. On Twitter at 1270, the fan. Wet ball. Taking your calls at 270-1270. What's up, baby? How you doing? Here we go. The Tim Graham Show. When's the last time you read the New Testament? Huh? I'm trying to put my junk back in place. You're one of the guys I'm following on Twitter, you know. I like this guy, uh, Tim Graham. Welcome to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my teammate. We're pretty sick of each other at this point. Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic, we spent five days together, joined at the hip at the Combine. Well... Except for from four to six last Wednesday. Right. and I, I, was, I didn't know where you were. And also from daylight, in daylight hours, we weren't True. either. I, have a I ten- was awake. I'm Right. I have a tendency to sleep in, in general, let alone when I'm using finger quotes, networking the night before. But there are certain ways to get work done. I get my best work done while people have their guard down and they learn that I'm not some savage fake news media plagued with the coronavirus or whatever. There's a fear of the media out there. And sometimes you need to let you need to get into situations where people see this is just a regular guy. Now not not, not a backwards hat kind of guy. I'm a frontwards hat kind of guy. You're not wearing one today. But I could be. I think a lot of readers would maybe be surprised to hear how many of these beautiful stories you've written that are Submitted as the sun is rising. Oh, that's a fact. It's a high percentage. It's probably a hundred. It's not just your it's, best networking work. It's your best. That's you know, when have I you work. read this. I've read a story recently. I'll have to find. Wait, it. let me bring in the rest of the crew. But yeah, I'll, we'll talk about this. So Jonah Bronstein here is all. Uh, he's he's also uh, trying to handle the video aspect of things. Two weeks ago, it was a a, a, a gong show. Are you and last week we did our best work though with you not being here. That's fine. I'm okay with that. And you know who else is okay with that? Four people. Four other people. Shampo, Travis, B-Saw, and Kirshner. They thought it was a great show, and I'm thinking about stepping back. (laughs) Who is that? Is that Gronk? (laughs) Bobby Rosati, Diddle in the Knobs. What's up, baby? How you doing? We have... uh, a, a lot of stuff to talk about. We're, Bills make some coaching changes today, which I think are fascinating. Um, no real new names. Nobody was fired. Uh, different titles, which suggest different emphasis. What's the plural of emphasis? Emphases. Emphases. Different emphases. Emphysema. <laughs> Funky cold emphysema. Uh, we have uh, Tim Bontemps from ESPN. He's going to be on the show. He's St. Bonaventure grad, longtime uh, friend of the show. He's going to talk about the NBA and, surprisingly, some Western New York high school basketball because this guy knows his stuff. Yeah, he's 
could pretty much just replace me on this show. He seems like he knows more about what's going on than I do. Uh, he he uh, he comes at a higher salary. He yeah, has. I don't think uh, we could fit him under the cap. Yeah, we couldn't. No, I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I would have to call Shampoo Travis Bison Kirshner to see if I could get the cap raised. Acquisitions. It's important. We're tight. We're tight against the cap. As you it might is. be able to do that because also working for Shampoo Travis Bichon Kirshner is Randolph's McKenna Maycock. Tim went to Randolph. Another connection we can make between the two. So they they might be able to up the budget to get Tim Bonteps in studio. Maybe we could fly him here. House him wow. at your house. That we mentioned huge. her on the show a few weeks ago. She had a record that was surpassed. Yeah, right? she had the all-time scoring record in Western New York, which was surpassed by Danny Haskell at Franklinville earlier this year. Now Danny's up to number two in the state, over 3,000 points in the game since then. And she's going to Canisius. Yep, absolutely. And Tyler Hine down at Randolph, who's in the top ten in the boys' scores, is going to Damon. So it's a big, this is a big year. It's probably the first time in history I would think that somebody in the top ten of the boys and top ten of the girls all time were in the same graduating class. No. All right, so we're going to get into that later with Tim Bontemps. We're also going to have Megan O'Brien. She's going to make her Tim Graham Show debut she covers the Patriots, and uh, we're going to talk to her about the AFC East rival and what she thinks is going to happen with Tom Brady with all these different rumblings, reports. Jeff Darlington with a report today that – was it Jeff Darlington? that Boston Herald had it. I don't know if it was – I don't know. Things who, didn't uh, go well. That Tom Brady and Bill Belichick met. It didn't go well, and it turns out there wasn't even a conversation uh, yesterday. What was it? So. I... The conversation yesterday. Schefter had a report about – Five six minutes ago, that friend of the show Tom Curran was on that phone call. He wasn't on the phone call with Bill and Tom, but he was on that news. Oh, right. I think. I was right. Gonna say. Imagine if that Imagine was a three-way call. Scoop. All right, we got to get this <laughs> squared away. You know who I wouldn't be surprised? A reporter who was on that three-way call would be Jim Gray. He's tight with uh, Tom Brady. He does those yeah. uh, Monday Night Football interviews with Tom Brady on Westwood One Radio and does all kinds of stuff. Imagine to Tom Brady, the power that he could have. He could be on a conference call with Tom Brady and then just leave his phone open and let somebody listen, like call in. I'm going to be on speakerphone, call in, and I'll just let you listen to what Bill and I talk about. There was something with Dana White, too, that was yeah, going that, on on Twitter. He, he was on the phone with Dana White on Instagram, and uh, Dana was trying to get him to go to Vegas, for obviously for the Raiders, but uh, Brady just said, I want to be patient through the process and the usual stuff. So nothing really from Brady, but it seems like the only person that's refuting the initial report of it didn't go well, meaning the phone call yesterday, um, is Schefter. We have a phone call out to the Bills, or a text out to the Bills, to maybe have Sean McDermott join the Ooh. show to talk about his coaching maneuvers, but haven't heard back. You know, it's a long shot. I think Sean McDermott's all talked out. He was just uh, doing a news conference last week at the Combine. Um, so a lot was learned at the Combine. A lot of networking's done. But, yeah, just to put a, a bow on your, your point about working at night, that is true. I, I generally don't get started working until 10 p.m., Some people's brains are that way. Yeah. That's science. That's the way it's always Society been Society made us work 9 to 5. But really, some people are meant to work right. evening hours. Yeah, Not I, everybody's brain is the same. I generally file my stories around 7 a.m., 8, 9, depending on how long it takes me to finish up. But my intention is, all right, I'm going to get started here. I'm going to crank this thing out. But I'm such a research junkie that I can't just sit down and write. Everything I do is I have in the back of my mind, well, I wonder if... And then I go down a rabbit hole of research, and I may take 45 minutes to learn 
okay, that was a silly thing. I'm going to leave it alone. Or it may be, oh, my, I didn't know this. And so it becomes a totally different part of my story. So anyways, I, I like to think that I'm going to get started around 10 and uh, work for the next eight hours. And sometimes I file my story at 9 or 10 in the morning, but I haven't slept. See, I used to think of those as all-nighters from you when you filed the Kyle Ocposo story as we were boarding a flight to Minnesota and you had me read it and you hadn't slept. And I'm like, man, Tim pulled an all-nighter on this thing. And then I, as I have gotten to know you and your work habits more, I think of it as, oh, Tim just worked up until he went to bed. Yes. It's not really an all-nighter if that's your that's sleep true. pattern. That's true. Right. right. Man, I think you're giving him too much credit. Maybe. I think these are just uh, procrastination techniques that have become habitual, but it, it does produce good work. Hmm. Theoretically. Eh. So these coaching maneuvers by the Buffalo Bills, uh, Matt, you spoke with Leslie Frazier today. Uh, what were your takeaways from your conversation with him? As Well, let's uh, give a rundown real quick. So the Bills uh, announced today that Leslie Frazier has been promoted to assistant head coach uh, he's still going to be the defensive coordinator. Uh, Mark Lubick, he's the assistant wide receivers coach uh, now, and he's also going to be slash game management guy, which that is the most fascinating to me because that's not a common title that you see around the NFL. Now, they might have a game management designated dude, but they don't necessarily give it a title. And I've written stories about that. I did a story on clock management and who handles your decision on whether or not to challenge a play or to whatever all the different things that go into it and the consensus was every team's got a guy but they don't like to name who it is so that way he doesn't get blamed for it so interesting that uh, the bills do that uh, Shea Tierney a name that we've heard Josh uh, Allen say ever since he was a rookie uh, mention about his work with Shea Tierney he's always just been an offensive quality control coach which is an ambiguous title but now he's promoted to assistant quarterbacks coach Ryan Wendell is the assistant O-line coach. And then Jimmy Salgado uh, is now going to coach the nickel, uh, nickel backs, the nickel defense, the nickel packages. We don't really know. But anyways, you spoke with Leslie Frazier today. Um, shot in the dark. Maybe we get Sean McDermott to come on and, and talk about it a little bit uh, before we go off the air at 6. But uh, what were your takeaways? It sounds as if this is not a dramatic change in Leslie Frazier's responsibilities. It's more so about getting him the recognition that for all the work that he's done over the last three years behind the scenes, he's been an important, you know, sounding board for Sean McDermott, probably even more important than we know at times. Uh, you know, he mentioned today when I was talking to him, you know, before Sean McDermott has meetings with ownership, occasionally he'll consult Leslie Frazier about how to handle it. And Leslie's big thing is about making sure to the best that he possibly can, Sean doesn't make the same mistakes that he made when he was a head coach. And I think a lot of times it is an important thing for the Bills to do because when you're a defensive coordinator under a defensive head coach, a lot of people are going to look at that and say, you're not responsible for that defense. The defense is Sean McDermott's defense. You don't hear a lot of people referencing Leslie Frazier's defense, and that's why he hasn't been a – that's probably part of the reason why he hasn't been a sought-after head coaching candidate, in addition to some other reasons. But, you know, giving him that that recognition as assistant head coach and – 
you know, there's also the minority aspect of this, which you've written about extensively is, you know, the per- perception is everything sometimes with, you know, how guys are, are viewed around the league and who's getting interviews for certain jobs and things like that. So, uh, you know, this is something that I think was important to the Bills to recognize a guy who has been pretty humble in his role. He got his play calling stripped at one point, got it back and, and didn't miss a, a beat. And he's he's just a guy that's been steady for them and hasn't you see so many of these guys jockeying for their next job and and you know kind of self-promoting at times and Leslie Frazier is none of that and he's also more valuable than people know and hopefully until now and has been mentioned didn't get any interviews this offseason he did last offseason uh, but no head coaching interviews this offseason I wonder if there too is a feeling from Leslie Frazier of well maybe my window is closed to be a head coach and I don't think that's necessarily true. If he keeps stacking together good seasons with the Buffalo Bills and they keep posting good defensive numbers, the fact that he uh, did have a respected, if not a wildly successful, but a respected uh, head coaching uh, stint with the uh, Minnesota Vikings, uh, there is a chance that he'll get a, a chance. There's a chance that he'll get more opportunities to interview. Uh, and maybe become a head coach again. But I wonder if this title and these uh, and he talked to you about discussions he had with Kim Pagula um, regarding where he stands. Um, I don't know. I'm looking too much into it. But is, is there almost a um, at 60 years old? He turns 61 next month. Like a feeling of as long as Sean's here, or is like this is your job type thing I don't know if I mean assistant head coach and associate head coach these are titles that really don't mean anything they're a pay grade type thing it's like you say it's a show of respect but yeah, I just wonder da- if there's more to it these aren't going to be much different at all I don't expect I just that... wonder if there's more to it in light that is there a coincidence that because he didn't get any opportunities to interview as a head coach this offseason the Bills feel a need to say look you're our guy um Maybe, maybe, maybe there's no need to look around anymore. I think there could be part of that of saying, "Look, you're you're valued here, and you know whether you get interviews or not, whether that opportunity pops up or not, you're important to us." In case he does get the itch, and he is one of those guys, you know, having covered, you know, a handful of defensive coordinators and offensive coordinators, where you just never get the sense. And I don't want to say this in the sense that he's not ambitious enough to want to be a head coach. I think he wants to be a head coach. He interviewed for jobs just last year. But you don't get the sense that he's ever, you know, posturing for it. Even when asked about the Rooney rule at times, has talked about, you know, wanting, um, you know, wanting to be qualified, not wanting to be an interview for the sake of an interview. But he is a prominent voice um, when it comes to diversity hiring in the league. He spoke last week at the Combine. Uh, Kim Pagula is part of that panel uh, with the league, one of six owners. And so he mentioned he had a long conversation with Kim last week that he's never had with any owner, uh, a, a conversation you know deep on these issues that he's never had with any owner in his whole time in the league. And this is a guy who was a head coach at one point. So, you know, he values – how important it is to Kim to have um, to get better at that sort of thing, um, you know, in terms of having more uh, minorities getting opportunities and getting, you know, it's a small step. It's not, you know, he should have gotten interviews. He, you could argue, he should be a head coach right now, but 
having the the title will at least turn some heads when you're when it comes time for the next cycle and people are interviewing again. If you were to say to me, uh, Tim, I'm going to pick you have you get all right. Let me see if I can start over again without totally tripping over myself. If you were to ask me towards the end of the Bills season, which coordinator is going to get interviews in the NFL for head coaching jobs, Leslie Frazier or Brian Dable, I would say clearly Leslie Frazier. You know, Brian Dable got an interview somehow in Cleveland as a head coach. And I'm not not, not to say that Brian Dable did poor work, but that was kind of a strange situation it's not as though the bills lit it up there are still a lot of questions surrounding josh allen it's not one of those stereotypical we're going to give this guy a look because he clearly has solved or he is he has helped create a star quarterback in the nfl but of course he does have a lot of rings he came from belichick's staff he has been an offensive coordinator in the league before he won a national championship with nick saban at alabama Uh, but um I would think that Leslie Frazier would have uh, more credibility as a head coach in 2020 than Brian Dable. Who would you hire? Leslie Frazier. Right. I I think most people who follow the team closely, it's not a major slight on Brian Dable to say that, but I think in terms of what you look for in a head coach uh, and the success that he's had, he's been in that seat before and – I think a lot of it has to do with, in addition to, you know, the fact that he had it once and failed, that's sometimes a deterrent, but has, wasn't for, you know, Mike McCarthy, Rex Ryan, whoever else. There's been a million of them. There's the minority issue, but there's also the defense issue. Defensive guys aren't as sought after. I mean, taking an offense from what, 30th to. 23rd is like, well, we got to take a look at that guy. You know, and it's not a, you know, Brian Dable is working with what he's working with, but taking Josh Allen from where he was to slightly below average is like, well, we got to have that guy. If they want their hands on any, anybody who's had any modicum of like offensive success, defined however you want, but there is that part of this, I think, that uh, is working against Leslie Frazier in some ways and the fact that. He's a defensive coordinator under a defensive head coach. Nobody refers to it ever as Leslie Frazier's defense. But, And I think particularly around here, when you went from having Dennis Thurman, who did the probably, I don't know, less than most defensive coordinators in the NFL, maybe in NFL history under Rex Ryan. I I mean, I don't know if that's a stretch, but to go from Dennis Thurman and think, oh, that's what a defensive coordinator is when you have a defensive head coach. And then Leslie Frazier comes in, he's calling plays. He's uh, an important sounding board for Sean McDermott. He's a really important leader in that defensive room. You know, it's a, it's a pretty drastic change. It can vary from coach to coach how much your, you know, coordinator gets responsibility and it's usually pretty vague most people don't really know the big difference and so titles like this can be important in distinguishing like yeah this guy's important to us and and we we value what he brings to the team it projects that to the players too to some degree I don't know how many of them actually pay attention to whether or not a guy has an associate head coach or an assistant head coach title but 
Some do, and it does add to the gravitas, I think. Uh, but well, we'll see. Uh, really, uh, it's the other coaching maneuvers that I found interesting, and we're going to get into them later on in the show. Uh, but next, uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to have Megan O'Brien. Uh, she covers the New England Patriots, and we're going to talk to her about those guys and one guy in particular, Tom Brady, when we come back on The Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK. The Tim Graham Show, now on Sports Radio 121270, The Fan. Sorry I'm late. Tim's flight was delayed. Truth be told, did it give you the vapors? I told you for the last time. Um... From time to time. Tim <laughs> your calls. Welcome to the Tim Graham Show. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampo Travis Bison, Kirshner, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic. Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Consultants. He's here. Bobby Rosati on the board. And one of the great NFL offseason sagas, maybe the number one NFL offseason saga of 2020, is what will happen with Tom Brady. And so it makes sense to welcome onto the show Megan O'Brien. She's a reporter at Patriots.com. She's been following this closely. And uh, she was at the Combine last week, too, so she had her ear to the, to the ground trying to figure out what's going on with this Tom Brady fella. Megan, thanks for coming on the show. Guys, thanks for having me. That has been the story of the offseason. No one cares about this new thing. No one cares about Jason McCordy. It's all Tom Brady all the time. Well, let's work at this in reverse, then. If not for Tom Brady, what would be the top, three storylines uh for the patriots and their fans what would what would the what would you don't have gronkowski to talk about um yeah i'll just let you go with that i think the big thing you look at the roster and calvin noy is expected to hit free agency and i think he's going to make a whole lot of money and then you have gavin mccordy one of the leaders on the team his contract is up matthew slater another leader on the team his contract is up the Patriots still don't have a tight end after Rob Gronkowski retired last year. So there's a lot to talk about there. But obviously, when you're dealing with the greatest quarterback of, of all time, it, that dominates the news cycle. And I'm in agreement with that, too. There are Bills fans who are listening to that, and they're, uh, they may have just changed the channel uh, or clicked off the podcast, depending on how they're uh, absorbing the Tim Graham show by CTBK. Because the thought of Tom Brady as the greatest quarterback of all time makes them gag uh, reflexively. I happen to agree with that. I'll even go so far as well, to say that. We just have gr- to look at the history. Yes. You know? It's all the rings, it's the records, it's the fact that he did it with different kinds of offenses, different kinds of players. Uh, okay, so let's throw all those other stories out. Uh, Tom Brady, uh, do you feel that you've covered his last game in a New England Patriots uniform? You know, I really think it's a coin toss, but if I have to pick one, I think I have covered his last game in a Patriots uniform. Not will cover it, but already have. Already have. 
And what makes you think that? I mean, which, it's intuition. It's from being around. It's all the different things that you gather, a, a little bit here, a little bit there. And, and, and I guess I'll ask this. Was it anything that happened in Indianapolis or things that you picked up that, that get you thinking this way? Or, or at what point did you come around to this, this inkling? I've honestly thought so since back in, well, in August when he signed the new contract extension, that appeared to be a two-year contract with the final year being a void year and also no option for the franchise tag. You raised your eyebrow a little bit. Hmm. Why doesn't he want a franchise tag? Hmm. Why is there that voidable year? So you really think, okay, this is a one-year deal here, and this really could be the time where Tom Brady is no longer a Patriot. And when you look at how this season went, you look at the state of the roster for the Patriots, they are in a rebuilding phase. They need to rebuild. If you sign Brady, it prevents the team from being able to rebuild, from going out and getting those pieces that they need. A lot of people just say, oh, sign Tom back and get weapons. Well, it's a lot more difficult than that, considering the cap hit he takes, the other players, veteran players, like I mentioned before, McCourty, that are crucial to the team. You need to bring them back. The missing parts on defense, the need for tight ends, weapons, you name it. It's a lot more complicated than just signing Brady, paying weapons. And you also have to look at what's available. And when you think about Tom, 43-year-old quarterback, I don't really think this is about money. I think he wants a multi-year deal. And quite frankly, he probably deserves it, considering what he's done for the franchise. But I'm not sure if Belichick is willing to give it. And I'm also not sure if it would be smart for Belichick to give him a multi-year deal. Megan, there's so many different angles to this story, different tentacles to it. But the, I think the first one is if he does leave, having watched him as closely as you have over the last few years, do you think he he's still good enough to win no, no matter where he goes? I mean, some of it will depend on the landing spot. He's not going to pick a, a lousy team. Do you think he's good enough to change the landscape of whatever franchise he ends up with? Well, that really depends where he ends up. I do think that he still he still has it, that's for sure. I mean, you look at the numbers last year, and his play certainly slipped, I guess, quote-unquote. But look at the offensive line he was playing behind, the receivers that he was working with. So there's a lot of other factors that play into that. But really, what you're asking a guy like Tom Brady to do, he's got one, maybe two more years left. So a team that's really in win-now mode, like the Titans, like now the 49ers are being thrown out there, insert a Tom Brady, I think that's a no-brainer. They'll win. But the question is, is Tom going to go there, and is he going to be able what he's is he going to be able to do what he's done in Foxborough? Is Alex Guerrero coming with? Can he do the TV 12 method? Can he miss mandatory minicamp? Can he play with veteran receivers? Like what? Can he have his offense? Or does he have to learn a new offense at 43 years old? Those are a lot of questions that we don't have answered. For the record, Tom Brady's contract is due to expire on March 18th. So we're 14 days away from that, exactly two weeks uh, that we need to uh, keep an eye on things. Maybe the only way that it'll end sooner is if, I guess, the, there's an announcement one way or the other that the Patriots have re-signed him or they're going to let him pursue free agency. But even if that, he could still come back to the Patriots. Uh, we're in conversation with Megan O'Brien. She's a reporter for Patriots.com. And, 
Uh, Megan, as, as somebody who's based there uh, in New England, uh, well, I, I can't ask you, <clears throat> excuse me, what the uh, what the AF, rest of the AFC East is going to uh, think about Tom Brady leaving. I'm sure they're going to be ecstatic. Um, but what do you think the reaction will be if this does come to pass, that Tom Brady leaves the Patriots? They're still the Patriots. They're still Bill Belichick. They're still the Crafts. There's still all the banners. There's all. But what do you think the mood will be uh, that the that this would be an end of an era and that Tom Brady is going to be seen in some other team's uniform? It's certainly the end of an era. You can't deny that. I think around New England, fans are quite frankly in denial. Everyone is saying, "Oh, he'll come back. He'll come back." He can't go anywhere else. How could he go anywhere else? He's Tom Brady. He's a New England Patriot. He he can't go anywhere else. But I think we're seeing a reality where this could happen. He could go somewhere else. I think for Belichick and the coaching staff, it would be very much business as usual. The record wouldn't look the same as it would with Brady. You also have to look at the Patriots' schedule next year. And, man, it's a doozy. They have a very challenging schedule that even with Brady would still be equally as challenging. But when you throw in there Tom Brady, those games that come down to the last drive, I think Brady can win those games. Do I feel confident that a Jared Stidham or a young rookie quarterback could win those games? Not quite. I do think fans would be quite, they would be heartbroken. And I think it would just be change around here. But look, franchises that are well-owned, well-operated, they bounce back. Look at the Colts when they tanked for luck, lost for luck, and the next year they were a playoff team. I'm not saying the Patriots instantly will be a Super Bowl contender in 2021, but franchises that are, have good coaches and that are well-owned and well-operated usually bounce back. You know, there's been a theory going back, well, geez, since I started covering the NFL in 2007 – uh, and then as I worked for ESPN and covered the AFC East, and you'd have these debates, these barroom debates on who made who, Tom Brady or Bill Belichick. Uh, is Could the Patriots win without one or the other? Uh, did Tom Brady make Bill Belichick a Hall of Famer or vice versa? Uh, and so there would always be this kernel of a thought, and I think it took hold in recent years, of them walking away together, that uh, one wouldn't work without the other. Um I guess I'll just leave it at that. What about the thought of both of them leaving? And it certainly doesn't seem as though Bill Belichick has shown any inclination to walk away from the game yet, but he also has said he didn't want to coach into his 70s. You know, years and years ago, he was like, I don't want to be doing this forever. And now here he is. Um, uh, here he is still getting into those uh, those years. Um, I guess, where do you think this leaves Bill Belichick if if this is the end for Tom Brady? I think if you're Belichick, you have to be excited about the opportunity to develop and to coach a young guy, to build another defense. When you look at the front seven, they have nothing. So you really have an opportunity to coach, and that's what Bill Belichick loves to do. He loves to teach. He loves to coach. And if Brady is no longer there, Belichick has that opportunity to really do what he loves and build a team and coach. Not that he wasn't building a team previously, but when you have a guy of, of Brady's caliber in the most, playing the most important position on the field, things change a little bit. And I think he would be excited about the opportunity for change, and it would be a new challenge for him. 
He'll be, for the record, 68 next month, Bill Belichick. Not a young man. No. And I, I, there's a quote that he had a handful of years ago where he gave an age where he's like, I don't want to be – he was just saying it kind of off the top of his head. It wasn't as though it were a deadline. But I think he's past whatever date, whatever age he said he'd, he'd want to be out of it by. Brady probably is – The Brady kept moving the goalpost too. Where, That's you know, right. As you get closer to it, you feel younger. What do you think, Megan, about – if Tom Brady does leave, is it is this Patriots team one that can grab a veteran quarterback, a Marcus Mariota or someone of that tier and compete next year? Or do you think, like you mentioned there, that Bill Belichick would be up for something of a rebuild to say, you know what, let's take a step back, take our lumps in 2020, uh, get a higher pick and, and kind of go for it and, and you know start the rebuild from the ground up? I just don't see the Patriots spending money on a veteran quarterback that's not named Tom Brady. I know Andy Dalton was, was thrown out there a couple of days ago. Why would you pay for Dalton if you're not going to pay for Brady? I could see maybe a Marcus Mariota, depending on what his price sticker is. I could see a veteran guy, perhaps maybe a Blake Bortles, someone of that caliber, of that price sticker. But I think what it's going to come down to, if Brady goes, it's going to be Stidham then they're probably going to draft a quarterback and then maybe bring in a veteran, like I mentioned, Blake Bortles, Cody Kessler's on the roster now, and have it a competition in training camp. That's what I really envision it to be because they're just not going to pay for someone that's not Tom Brady. I think it would be the ultimate middle finger from Bill Belichick to Tom Brady if he won a Super Bowl with Blake Bortles. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying Who made who? I just made Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles' caliber. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Megan, thanks for coming on the show. It's a lot of fun uh, to talk, uh, and I'm guessing it's a lot of fun for people in Buffalo to listen at the idea of Tom Brady uh, leaving the division finally. Um, I think it's a fascinating story. First off, as I've said, I think he's the greatest football player certainly that I've ever seen. And based on how things evolve, uh, you know, I think that uh, you know the players who are playing today are far better than the ones of 30, 40 years ago. So I, I would say that Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. Um, and I respect the hell out of the Patriots and Bill Belichick, who I think is the greatest coach of all time. But it, wow, it would people but, are unfollowing you right now. It, yes, in droves. Turning the radio off, hitting the unfollow button. That was a bold thing to say. But I do find it fascinating the idea of Tom Brady in another uniform, and just for the spectacle of it, and the fact that it, you know, we are people who write for a living and look for stories. I think it would be a fascinating story to see what he could do with another team and how it might affect his legacy. Because it is look, people don't remember John Unitas playing for this, the Chargers. Uh, they don't remember, or I'm sorry, was it the Chargers? And uh, who did Joe Namath end with? Joe Namath ended with somebody. It, also the Chargers? Was, or the Rams. Rams. The Rams, right. People don't remember that, really. Um, but in the t- in the moment, people will be talking about how that impacts his legacy. Well, he couldn't just, he didn't have the magic when he went to Houston or when he went to Vegas. I don't know. It's, it, but it'll be fast. It'll be fascinating as hell. Megan, thanks for joining us on the uh, NCCC Thunderwolves Hotline. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. That's Megan O'Brien from Patriots.com. She's a reporter there and uh, giving us all the latest on what's going on in New England and with Tom Brady uh, on the NCCC Thunderwolves Hotline. Come be a part of a winning team at Niagara County Community College. 
When we come back, more Bills and Sabres talk. Maybe some hoops. When we come back on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK. Show. I'll say it right to his face. I'll say it right to his face in cursive. The Tim Graham Show. It's about to get real. No matter where I'm at, somebody's going to feel me. This, this is Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Can you handle this? But he does have intriguing language. He only caught me with a joint. Oh, wrong one. Tim Graham Show on The Fan 10's app. Free to download in the App Store. Horses are athletes. Sure are. Now back to The Tim Graham Show. One of our sponsors is... Is a is horse. The Fan. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo Travis Bison, Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants. Frank Gore says he's training for a 16th NFL season. Does he have anything left to give to a team? Sure. I mean, leadership and stuff like that, but he certainly did not look like he had anything to give when he was playing for the Buffalo Bills in, say, November and December. No, but maybe... Too much was put on his shoulders early in the season. Maybe if you spread those, how many carries do you think he's good for? 75 for the year? 50 to 75? He got a lot of carries early in the year out of necessity. But even the veteran minimum contract it pays him a lot of money for those 75 carries. So really you're paying for a locker room presence. Sure. And I wouldn't put it past the Bills to bring him back for just that reason. But he can't play special teams. So you're looking at a third running back who doesn't play special teams, and that's pretty tough because running backs generally are core four guys. They're on kick cover, kick return, punt return. I don't think it's a good fit for the Bills anymore because, like you mentioned, I think you can do better with your third back, somebody who can play special teams, contribute out of the backfield, provide you something that's a valuable roster spot if Devin Singletary goes down and they were doing a lot of homework on running backs at the combine so you would think that they're you know planning for the future there but the thing is the interests of a team that would want Frank Gore probably don't align with Frank Gore's interests Frank Gore is going to be 37 on May 14th if you're a rebuilding team if you're not very good, but you want to have a guy in there that does things the right way and is somebody that people can look at, maybe you'd want to bring in Frank Gore. But would Frank Gore really want to put his 37-year-old body through, uh, what did you refer to it as, the uh, in Shawshank? The, the <laughs> what was it? The, the sludge pipe? The sludge pipe, yeah. The sludge pipe of a 4-12 and season. Does he need that? He might. He's... Wired a little bit differently, but... He made $1.25 million last season. And if he were to come back to Buffalo, unlike LaShawn McCoy, I don't know if he thinks this. No one who anybody I've ever spoken to ever says that he's one, a guy who thinks this way. But Frank Gore 
is not about stats or the Hall of Fame and all that stuff or getting to certain barriers or passing this guy or passing that guy. Um, he is at 15,347 yards, which is third or fourth? Third? I wrote about it. I think he, I think he needs – yeah, he needs to catch Walter Payton next. So that's not going to happen. It's not as though Frank Gore is going to be shopping around for a team that's going to make him a workhorse. I think he'd be fine to be an uh, a complimentary player – and um, he's number three all time and needs 1,400 yards to pass Walter Payton. Not going to so happen. That's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Even if you divvy that up over two seasons, he'd have to play till he's 40 to have any prayer of catching Walter Payton. And he's still going to have to be productive, relatively speaking, within those three seasons. He seems like the kind of guy who somebody needs to tell him he's done. And so he needed to put it out there like, hey, I'm still here. I'm still available. And if it comes to be where everybody's like, we're good, Frank. You, it's time for you to hang it up. Then maybe he'll do it, but he doesn't seem like the type of guy to walk away. 600 yards rushing last year, 599 to be precise for the Bills. He only averaged 3.6 a carry, but he did have a stretch where he kept the Bills afloat while Devin Singletary was hurt. And I'll just read off of a handful. Uh, this is from game two to game seven where he started uh, six straight games. Ran 19 times for 68 yards and a touchdown. 14 times for 76 yards and a touchdown. 17 times for 109 yards. No scores in that game, but that's a 6.4-yard average. 14 times for 60 yards. 11 times for 55 yards. And then uh, against Philly, in which uh, the Bills were playing from behind quite a bit and really uh, had to abandon their run game early, he started but ran only nine times for 34 yards. So, uh, and not a lot of catches, really. I mean, not to speak of uh, a couple here and there. Uh, He had uh, no receiving uh, touchdowns last year. But towards the end of the season, any time he came in in relief, uh, I'm looking at a November 3rd game against Washington, 11 carries for 15 yards. Uh, The next week at Cleveland, five times for 12 yards. Uh, At Miami, 11 times for 27 yards. That was supposed to be a big homecoming game because Frank Gore uh, playing for uh, the Miami Hurricanes, and of course he comes from uh, uh, Coral Gables, and so big homecoming game, and it was a dud for him. Uh, and even in garbage time, couldn't pick up anything. Comes up for air against Denver, 15 carries for 65 yards, but then back down to a 9 for 11 yards, 4 for 6 yards, 10 carries for 15 yards. Just nothing left. Nothing left from November on. 10 games with double-digit carries. That's kind of my point. That's too much. That's why he was shot at the end of the year is because I, I just think that's an unrealistic role to have on a, a 36-year-old running back and probably only gets more unrealistic with a 37-year-old. What's back. the overview then of the Bills running back situation for 2020? Obviously, Devin Singletary is the lead back, but and they're going to have to make a move somewhere, whether it be in free agency or the draft, because I don't think that T.J. Yeldon and Sonoris Perry are, are, pro- are probably answers there, but... What do you foresee the Bills doing when it comes to free agency and draft uh, when, in running backs? They did a lot of homework on running backs in the at the combine. I really think it's, you know, the way to go is to draft a guy, whether it's in day three or even undrafted free agency. This sort of cycle they've been going through where they bring in these various veteran running backs, whether it was Mike Tolbert and they 
you know, did TJ Yeldon here? Well, Tolbert was a leadership thing too. That sure. was to help implement the McDermott. But does I... Devin Singletary need that now? Right. One year of Frank Gore, does he need a veteran in the room, or can he be the veteran? NFL running backs. How Yeldon's long those... under contract for another he year, is. right? And I think he'll be a factor. McDermott spoke pretty highly of him last week, uh, and about he did show some pop when he was in there, but. I feel like continuing to add youth makes a lot of sense. You're a Devin Singletary injury away from Sonoris Perry and TJ Yeldon, the way, or Christian Wade, if you want to. Uh, Bills get fans weird. are excited about that. They are. I wouldn't get too excited about it, but. Do you think there's a chance he makes the roster next year? I think it's a slim this chance. This year, I should say, 2020. But hey, he's going to be out there competing. So there's a non zero chance. But I would say it's a. It's a long shot because they have another year where they can keep him on the practice squad, so they probably would prefer to do that. But you need to add to this this backfield. Devin Singletary has, you know, in his one year in the league, missed time with a hamstring injury. So you don't want to be in – I think he has a chance to have a really great year next year, but it doesn't mean you don't want to have two, three guys back there that can be counted on in the event where – you really need them. So it's a it's a need for the team. I think it it might be their strongest position uh, or one of them uh, on offense. Probably the, strong, the strongest position on offense, maybe, is Devin Singletary starting at running back. But the depth might be one of their weaker points on the yeah, whole it is, it's It's interesting to look at. Everybody wants to focus on wide receiver. I particularly am focusing on tight end. Uh, we got a couple minutes here before we need to take a break. Let's take a let's talk about tight end for a second. Uh, Sean McDermott was quick to defend the tight ends that were on his roster. People are high on Dawson Knox. I'm going to pull up some stats here, but uh, in the meantime, uh, your your overview on the tight end position. I don't think it's a dramatic need. I don't think it's something that's super super pressing. But they did kick the tires on Greg Olson. Um, they were one of the teams that brought him in and, and was negotiating with him. They didn't get it done, but you have to think if you're willing to bring in a, a player of that caliber, and yes, he's not what he once was. He's dealt with injuries. He's older. Maybe he could have been that Frank Gore for the room, but does that room really need a Frank Gore when you've got Lee Smith? Uh, isn't that sort of what Lee Smith's supposed to provide? Greg Olson, different different flavor people um, rave about lee smith as a leader right that he's uh, he can't fact, catch you right. know the ball very well or he's not a receiving threat he can catch the ball uh i i, I do think it's funny when we go to these extremes lee smith can't catch the ball like, right he's a, he's a professional football player. he's an he can, uh, right he can catch the ball he's i actually had a conversation with lee smith about this very topic very early in the season last year i said what is it about where guys get labeled blocking tight ends and i said and we got into it because he doesn't take offense. I'm like, how much difference is there between you and Jimmy Graham when it comes to catching the ball? And he broke it down like this. He says, it's not catching the ball. I can catch the ball just as well as Jimmy Graham. It's the separation. And it's the fact that he doesn't have the speed. Jimmy Graham also can't, you know, block the wind if he was, you know, standing in front of a, you know, uh, a tunnel. So it's about the separation and the fact that a, a defensive back can get a hand on it and all this other stuff. And it's position. He's like, he, he's just too big and, and not fast enough. Uh, it, it's so, but 
you put me in a situation where I'm on the red in the red zone or on the goal line, I'm gonna I'm open. I'm gonna catch it. I'm not gonna drop. I don't have bad hands, right. but he's, he's not the guy you want to go to because he's not gonna get open. Yeah, he's he's a pretty good football player. Uh, Let me the- just read off these stats here before we need to take the break. Uh, Buffalo's tight end stats last year compared to the NFL average: forty six catches for the Bills. 30 below the NFL average. The average NFL team caught 76 passes or had their tight ends catch 76 passes. Bills 46. 604 yards for the Bills tight ends. League average 822. So you're missing out on 820 or on uh, uh 220 yards there. Uh four touchdowns for the Bills tight ends. 6 is the NFL average. 26 first downs going to tight ends for the Bills. 42 uh, for the NFL average. So way below, and you want to look at ranks, Bill's tight ends rank 24th in targets, 26th in catches, 24th in yards, 24th in touchdowns, 22nd in red zone touchdowns, 25th in first downs. So granted, it's a volume aspect to it there too. Josh Allen didn't throw it to his tight ends as often as others uh, as other quarterbacks. However, I think he wouldn't mind. I don't think he's against it. I don't think that there's something about Josh Allen that says, well, he's not the type of quarterback that's going to go to his tight end. You know, give him somebody who, let, let's see what happens. And that's something I said in my mailbag uh, at The Athletic a couple of weeks ago. Uh, once in my life, I'd love to cover a dangerous tight end in the NFL because I think they're fun. I think Rob Gronkowski is fun. Jimmy Graham is fun. There's something about Greg a, Olson a is guy fun. that large. Travis Kelsey is fun. Things. George Kittle. George is Kittle is fun. fun. Something about somebody that large doing Tony Gonzalez, that the all these guys. guys are supposed yeah. to do is cool. And it's probably the best thing for Josh Allen. You talk about all the different weapons people want to surround him with, right? What better for a slightly inaccurate quarterback with a propensity for firing it in there than just a big target? Who, with the catch radius and everything else that goes along with being a dominant tight end, that physical presence where he can say, you know what, he doesn't even have to really think. I think that's part of the problem with like these deep balls to John Brown, and he's got a he's sitting back there thinking, man, I got to really put this one in the right spot. If you're looking at Rob Gronk Rob, Rob Gronkowski, and they're not going to find that guy, but looking at somebody like that, you're not thinking, man, I got to thread this in there. You're just thinking. I just got to chuck it, and this guy's going to go get it. And I guess where that Greg Olson would the, come in. That guy's not on the roster right now. So whether it's a tight end or whether it's a wide receiver, Chase Claypool from Notre Dame is a name that's got brought up. He's a wide receiver, but some people think he should move to tight end. I think people get too caught up in that stuff. If he's a wide receiver who's big enough to be a tight end, just find ways to get him out there. You know, Travis Kelsey mostly plays in the slot a lot of the time. You know, George Kittle plays in the slot a lot. Rob Gronkowski even did that, even though he was a great blocker. They need weapons. They need guys that can go up and get the ball in critical situations. And why do you think Josh Allen was looking to Duke Williams so much in the playoff game? Because he's that kind of guy. He's not very good at it. Uh, he's not polished. He's not a seasoned, you know, productive, contested catch receiver. But in key, in the most important game of the season – he went to a guy that was not on the game day roster most of the season. Because when he went to John Brown in the Ravens game, he got out-muscled for the ball by Marlon Humphrey. When he went 
to Cole Beasley in some critical situations, he couldn't come down with the tough catches. When he went to Robert Foster, not a lot happened. He saw Duke Williams as a guy that was fighting for the ball. It didn't have to be perfect. He would put it up there and he would fight for it. And Duke Williams was one of the only guys on the roster with that quality, and they need another one. Imagine what will happen if he gets a guy who will do that and is good at it. Right. And, (laughs) yeah, you know, you don't want to get a guy that – it doesn't just have to be a big guy. could be a smaller guy who has that quality. Kelvin Benjamin was a big guy who had no interest in going to get the football. That's not very valuable. But, you know, Steve Smith, the Panthers version – was a tiny guy who would kick your ass to get the football. So there's different – it comes in different packages, but they need a guy who wants the football when it's in the air badly and who has that catch radius and that ability to take a less-than-perfect pass from Josh Allen and make something of it because I think that's what Josh Allen needs more than anything. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the Bills, their coaching decisions, uh, what we learned at the Combine, and we're going to have Tim Tim Bontemps from ESPN. He's an NBA reporter that a lot of folks here in Western New York know from his time at uh, St. Bonaventure and also with the Buffalo News briefly before going off to the New York Post, the Washington Post, now uh, covering the NBA for ESPN. We're going to talk about the association Uh, and more when we come back on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK right here on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. Graham Show brought to you by Shampoo, Travis, Besaw, and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants right here on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. I'm Tim Graham from The Athletic here with Jonah Bronstein of The Bronstein Firm. Matthew Fairburn, also The Athletic, he's here. Bobby Rosati is running this show. Do we even want to bother talking about the Sabres today? <laughs> Is there anything to say? Any no. points to raise? No. We're at, we're in an even worse spot, I think, than last year, considering the uh, the record state is of one the team. game worse, right? But considering the state of the team and what they have and and where they've gone over the past, you know, three quarters of the season is pathetic compared to last year. And that's saying something. A week ago, it wasn't like that. A week ago, it seemed like John yeah. Wara was in here telling us how things were. I know. Trending in the right direction, even if not, you couldn't really see it in the standings, right. but that this was different than last year, and now I'm, I'm not so sure after that Oral road trip. always sees the sunny side of things. That's a great so. point. That's, That's what he's known for. He's, he's always been known for that, so <laughs> you got to remember that. Last year at this time, I had uh, a source within the Sabres organization tell me that uh, Phil Housley wasn't going anywhere, that they felt the, a coaching change was – silly that it was it wasn't going to help any that coaches are kind of interchangeable at the NHL level which I don't I don't dispute in 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 a general sense but things got so bad if you take a well you don't have to take a look back I mean the scars are still there if you're a Sabres fan about how things went from March onward and uh, how it became inevitable that the that the Pagulas had to fire or Jason Botterill, whoever's in charge, had to fire uh, Phil Housley. And if things go sideways this year, though, is it the coach's fault? I mean, whose fault is it? The coaches, the GM? Do you then look back and say maybe it wasn't Phil Housley's fault? Maybe it's Jason Botterill? You know, I don't know. If the if a skid happens two years in a row, if it was the coach's fault last year, they're probably not going to fire Ralph Kruger this year and say it's his fault too. So what's the 
Is it? It's clearly not six of one, half dozen of the other. What's the difference? Well, maybe their instincts were right that coaches are interchangeable and it doesn't matter. They switched and they still stink. You know, John Vogel uh, had a note in uh, one of his pieces at the Athletic recently. Uh, about Jason Bottrell's future, in which he referenced uh, word coming out of uh, uh, the Pagula Empire uh, regarding Jason Bottrell's future and uh, that he maybe doesn't have a plan and doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, if that's the case, is that a harbinger for planting a seed of, of a change with Jason Bottrell? Um, and, but then also, John Vogel raised the point that uh, word was coming out at a time when the Pagulas were under quite a bit of criticism regarding everything from misspelled jerseys to arena improvements that need to be made. Um, what are some of the other, you know, little uh, things that 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 uh, fly around regarding, you know, the things that fancy on the periphery, uh, the fan experience, DJ uh, Milk, DJ Milk, uh, no giveaways, uh, and then then we and then season tickets go up last week too, which was. Uh, uh, anyways, um, John Vogel wondered if if shifting the blame towards Jason Bottrell was a tactic just to get heat off of the Pagulas, uh, which uh, we know uh, they're they're pretty sensitive about uh, over there. Um, but it's interesting to see what'll happen here over these last few weeks of the season, and and uh, I I don't think that the players are playing for Jason Bottrell's job per se. Um, but is he safe? Are they going to let him carry out his plan? Do they agree with his plan? Uh, it's it's what a, is it's a mystery. Plan? I think his I think his plan coincides with what the Bills did two years ago or two seasons ago, in which we're going to nuke the team and get rid of a lot of bad contracts. We're going to hit the reset button, and we are going to get through this season, take our lumps like the Bills did in 2018. And we're going to come back with a lot of salary cap space. We're going to have a chance to um, reimagine our roster and spend money on free agents. Well, so did the moves that Jason Bottrell made at the trade deadline, it seemed a little bit more of a coaching or trying to save his job, make the playoffs this season, not really clearing cap space for the future. Well, you, you, they traded a couple of for a couple of rental players. Uh, they really didn't give up too much in terms of assets. Wayne Simmons coming in. I think that uh, you know Matt and I were talking about this last week when the trade was made. Uh, we're both uh, fans of Wayne Simmons, the hockey player, and uh, he's known as a leadership guy, and he's one of those uh, does-all-the-little-things type guy that maybe the Sabres need. You know, an example, you know, one of those types of dudes on the roster. And he's uh, only under contract for the rest of the season, right? So there's a chance to re-sign him. And if it doesn't work out, then they cut him loose and they don't have to worry about it. Um, but there is still a lot of room to play with under the cap. I think that uh, the Sabres have the third or fourth lowest contracts that apply to next year's cap right now. Now guys are going to be re-signed, restricted free agents and different things that you can do, but they do have options, I think, and some wiggle room to to overhaul the roster, which is very difficult to do in hockey. And I think a lot of people look at it, and there's a point I made in one of my mailbags recently also too, The it's a lot Your easier satchel. to – The satchel. Right, right, that's right. The satchel. My satchel. Don't undersell it. I sh- it is called the satchel. I, I branded it. I should own it. The satchel, which there will be another one on uh, th- either tomorrow or Friday. There'll be a, I'll be dropping another satchel. Um, 
is that it's a lot easier to reimagine your NFL roster than it is your NHL roster because you don't have guaranteed contracts in the NFL like you do in the NHL. And the oldest Bills draft pick still on their roster is Shaq Lawson from 2016. Everybody else came from somewhere else. And I think everybody else from that draft. Everybody else older. Yeah, that's right. The Sabres, take a look at their roster. Jack Eichel was drafted a year before that. It's hard to get rid of your players in the NHL. You can't just, like I'm, I'm, I'm saying that I, I think that Sabres are doing, hitting the reset button, it's, and just everything drops, and you do start from zero, practically zero or as, as close to zero as you want. In the NHL, you have to gut it out. You have to endure a lot of contracts. Yeah, and, like you say, nuke the roster. They didn't really do that because you can't. They kind of just right. stood, as much as stood you can. pat. Right. And right. they finally were, we're able to get it rid out. of Bogosian and That's right. Rodriguez. And, Let's phrase it this right. way. In the NFL, you can hit the hit the reset button and nuke, nuke the roster. Hit the nuke button. The red button. Go ahead and hit it. In hockey, you have to ride it out. Or get creative with your trades. You have to maneuver your way out of it. You can't or just... Or you just say, you know what? We're just going to cut Zach Bogosian. We're just going to send him to Rochester. Hopefully he doesn't report and we can get out of that. But like... A Kylock Poso. But they still took heat for that. How embarrassing it it was that Bogosian got out and he signed with Tampa Bay for and now look, see, somebody wanted him. Why couldn't we trade him? Right. So there's criticism all over the place. That's not very valid criticism, but it's criticism nonetheless. Or the Marco Scandella flip that Montreal did. That one, yeah, is a bit more valid. I mean, but you ride if you really ride that one out a little bit more, maybe you get more value. Right, but you couldn't foresee that St. Louis was going to have a guy almost die on the bench, a sure. defenseman practically die almost, and in fact he did die. Right, he had to be brought back. Injuries do death. happen though; guys don't die on the bench, but, but injuries do happen. St. Louis was a motivated buyer when sure. they probably paid too much for Marco Scandella from Montreal than they would have given the Buffalo Sabres, and Montreal picked up half his salary, which, granted, the Sabres could have done too. But anyways, it's not quite apples and apples. But there's a lot of criticism going around regarding uh, Jason Bottrell that I think is just everybody's just fed up and it doesn't matter what he does. They're, you're going to find fault in it. Now, is that me defending him? No, because if they fire – and I've said it on the show a gazillion times – I. I like the hire. I was a fan of the hire of Jason Bottrell. It's not working fine. You move on. Um, but I do think that he's at this stage where there's really nothing he can do to get himself out from behind the eight ball of fan criticism or fan his impression. And it goes and it's the Ryan O'Reilly trade too, which I will say for him at the time. People weren't critical of it at the time. No, Ryan not, O'Reilly, not too many, at least. Ryan O'Reilly put himself brilliantly on Ryan O'Reilly's behalf, put himself in a position where the Sabres almost had to trade him. He was a public relations disaster. Fans hated him. From the moment he said he lost his passion for the game, fans wanted him gone yesterday. They didn't care. Dump him for a bag of pucks, I think, was the general sentiment. Based on what we heard on this radio show, based on what you see on social media, fans turned on him. They hated him. So what happens? Jason Bottrell trades him. And at the time of the trade, the fans looked at it and said, oh, fine, okay. Well, their demeanor changes when 
Ryan O'Reilly goes on to win a Stanley Cup. Now it's, well, we should have seen that he was this kind of player. We should have gotten more for him. Well, and part of it, too, is the guy they got in return never showed up. Yeah, it didn't help. So you've got a guy, and that's tough, right, to even know, but you probably should talk to the agent like, hey, is this going to be okay? You're Because in that situation, you're dealing with a guy who does not want to play for your team and did a very public sit-down interview to say how depressing it was to play in Buffalo. So maybe, and Ryan O'Reilly didn't do that on his own. You know, his agent surely set that up. So maybe before you make that trade, you should call the agent of the guy you're getting and say, this guy's going to show up, right? <laughs> right? You know, like, this guy wants to be here. Is he is he in on this? Because we can shop this guy around and get something else. You know, he's a pretty good player. But if the Blues don't win the Stanley Cup and Ryan O'Reilly doesn't win the Conn Smythe, let's say, let's say the Blues have a great season and get eliminated in the conference finals last year is the heat on jason bottrell as high probably not there's this just this thing that's a guy went and he's the con he won the con Smythe. he was the postseason mvp but i think too there's a but symbolism Bill's, but of that. sabers fans wanted him gone there's that's a, the thing that i think people forget there is a a something that comes with winning the stanley cup in the con Smythe. when you say ryan o'reilly's name and I can imagine this is only 10 times stronger for people who passionately root for the Buffalo Sabres. When I hear Ryan O'Reilly's name, all I can think of is him with the Conn Smythe Trophy on the airplane, like drinking and having a good time. If he went on and had, I can't even tell you how many points Ryan O'Reilly had last season. All I can picture is him drinking a Guinness. I believe it was a Guinness. I can remember that he was drinking a Guinness, but I can't remember how many points he had. So to your point, <laughs> yeah, probably the heat isn't as strong, but... It's still there if he had the great season and carries him to the conference finals and, you know, he looks like this great player in part because the guy that they were supposed to get or one of the guys they were supposed to get never showed up. It'd be one thing if you traded for these promising prospects and they just kind of flamed out or injuries or you, you made a bad draft pick with the pick you got. Those things happen. But when the guy just doesn't show up, you traded one guy who hated playing here so much that you basically had no choice to trade him. And in return, you got a guy who hated it so much and never even did it. Hated it, <laughs> thought he would hate it so much that he just never even showed up. That was, the the Sabres dodged that bullet barely when they traded Dominic Hasek to the Detroit Red Wings and got Slava Kozlov in return. Now, Dominic Hasek was so fed up with the fact that the Sabres did not bring Michael Pekka back. There was a contract dispute uh, Michael Pekka was not under contract, so you can't call it a holdout. But Pekka missed the entire 2000-2001 season. It's a season in which the Sabres became a very good team in the, uh, as the season came to a close, got into the playoffs, make it to the second round, actually have Pittsburgh on the ropes, and were about to advance, if not for a miraculous uh, shot, bouncing off of, I think it was Jason Woolley's skate, straight up into the air, and lands on, no, it wasn't Jason Moy, but anyway, it bounced off a Sabres skate and lands right on the side of the crease on Mario Lemieux's stick. And he bangs it right past Dominic Hasek to force overtime. The Penguins win at the Igloo in overtime, forces Game 7, come back to Buffalo. The Sabres lose that game. Had they won that series, they would have advanced to face 
the New Jersey Devils, a team they swept in the regular season, and I think that the scoring margin was atrocious. The, the, The Sabres would have probably advanced to the Stanley Cup final, but they didn't have their captain. It wasn't just Michael Pekka was a player. He was their captain, Captain Crunch, and a very important player. He was a Selkie winner. And uh, so that's the type of guy that would make a difference, you'd think, right? Well, Dominic Cashin was fed up. And he's like, all right, I, I need to play. I'm either going to retire or you trade me. So he had all the leverage. And he forces the Reguses and Darcy Regeer to trade him, but to only a teams he wants to go to. Otherwise, I'm going to retire. He had all the leverage. He was the, one of the best hockey players in the in the world at the time and the best perhaps goaltender of all time so then they work out and start working out a trade with detroit and hashik says he gets to approve who the red wings trade to buffalo because he doesn't want him losing any important parts so now he's got even leverage on what the sabers are going to get in return unbelievable so he decide and word so the slava kozlov comes back who was a good player Vyakoslav. and uh Kozlov learns throughout this whole process. Not only is he getting traded to Buffalo, he was deemed not important, irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. that. Uh, so he's pissed off. He shows up, and he barely showed up, and he was not happy. And then finally, crazy. This is typical Buffalo luck. So finally, Slava Kozlov comes around, and he's like, "I'm gonna, still going to play hockey. All right, but Buffalo is not as bad as I thought it was. I remember the game. I think it was well it was in Columbus. He's starting to get hot." And he gets cut. His Achilles tendon gets cut by a skate, ending his season, I think probably his career. But it was like typical Buffalo luck that the guy, uh, that the guy just uh, had that leverage. But anyway, that's what it reminds me of with the whole thing of people not reporting when a hockey trade is. Hashik pretty much said, no, you're going to trade me. You're going to trade me to one of these places. You're going to, and Kozlov almost not showing up. Isn't that weird though that in this? I don't kind know of, really what got me. That's not. A, that's also not apples to apples. But that's that whole Ryan O'Reilly trade conjured that up for me. Also, I don't think you know this is a situation where you can say, "Man, if Patrick Berglund only showed up, <laughs> that's true." Right. Jason Bottrell wouldn't be taking any heat. Yeah, that's true too. He's not that good. Right. He's His, no Slava Kozlov. Right. Exactly. His career high is fifty-two points. And he hadn't hit. It just adds to the embarrassment. But when the it guy does. Doesn't show it's up. like you traded one guy who. And hated that was the embarrassment that the Sabers had. I think that's what I'm getting at. Back in 2001, the embarrassment of the Sabers is that they had the greatest player, maybe in the world, and they couldn't turn it. They couldn't maximize him as an asset because the player wouldn't allow him to. And that's kind of what Ryan O'Reilly did in the sense of he forced his way out by saying what he did publicly. Uh, everybody revolted and wanted him gone. The Sabres had to, tr- well, from a PR standpoint alone, the fans were happy that Ryan O'Reilly was gone, at least initially. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk to Tim, uh, Tim Bontemps from ESPN. He covers the NBA. Uh, we're going to get into what's going on with the New York Knicks, uh, the game that he covered last night. Uh, crazy. Karis LeVert scores 51 points, 37 from the fourth quarter on. Uh, in a crazy game uh, for the Brooklyn Nets uh, over the uh, Boston Celtics. Tim was at that game. We're also going to talk to him about uh, NBA Rookie of the Year race, uh, what's going on uh, around the league, and uh, much, much more when we come back on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. 
The Tim Graham Show. Oh, wait, let's oh. listen to this. I think about the guy who's suffering from... Welcome back to The Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo Travis, Bison, Kirshner, CPAs, and business consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here in studio with Jonah Bronstein and also uh, Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic. Bobby Rosati, Ditto and the Knobs. And without waiting anymore, let's get right to the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline where we have ESPN NBA reporter Tim Bontemps who witnessed what well, this was like Kobe's big night. This was like Wilt Chamberlain scoring 100. <laughs> Karis Lavert of the Brooklyn Nets. Karis freaking Lavert with 14 points through three quarters. Scores 37 in the fourth quarter and overtime, including three free throws with .2 seconds left. I mean, this guy was amazing last night. Uh, former Ohio Bobcats recruit, Karis LaVert at that. But anyway. Michigan man played for John Beeline. I know, but he was a recruit. He went. He was going to go to Ohio University. Well, he made a good decision. It would have been, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Anyway, Tim Bontemps was at that game last night. We're going to talk with him about uh, that and more. Tim, thanks for coming on. Anytime, guys. How are you? I'm doing great. Tim Bontemps, St. Bonaventure grad and uh, been a longtime friend of the show. Um, so I don't know if we want to start off with Karis LeVert, but I know it was the game that you covered last night. It's fresh in your mind. Yeah. Um, maybe we want to start with something else, some sexier storyline like Spike Lee or what's going on with uh, or John Beeline, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to let you pick your poison. Where do you want to start? I might as well start with Karis LeVert. That was something else last night. Yeah. Are you... He's been warming up here now. I know he was, uh, you know, he was barely on the team for a good chunk of the season, but um, he's he's had some big performances over the last four or five weeks. What, what can you tell us about Karis Levert and what you're what's going through your mind as you're watching him take over to the point where he outscores the entire Celtics team thirty-seven to thirty-six from the fourth quarter on? Well, it was really an interesting game last night because the Nets were down by a significant amount for the vast majority of it. And the, the game was just kind of on cruise control uh, for, for everybody involved, really. Uh, in the fourth quarter, Karras is out there with three basically third-string guys. Um, so it was just things were just kind of floating along, and there wasn't really any uh, indication that this was going to happen. Even as Karras is getting hot, uh, the Celtics are still up by 10 or 12 most of the quarter. Um, then all of a sudden you look up and there's – three seconds left. They have a chance to tie the game. And then the Celtics just insanely foul him uh, when he wasn't even going to get a shot off with a second left and, uh, you know, give him a chance to tie the game. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, it was the kind of game that the Nets really needed. I mean, they've been in a rough stretch lately. Obviously Kevin Durant isn't going to play this season. Kyrie Irving yesterday was officially announced. He's having shoulder surgery that ends his season. Um, Nets had lost four in a row. They're like struggling to make the playoffs. And, you know, they, they had to go play on a back-to-back tonight against a Memphis team that was going to be rested. I mean, they, they were not feeling good before the game. Uh, so for them, there was just like pure elation that they're able to come back and, and, you know, somehow pull this game out of the fire and win. And, you know, for the Celtics, it was just such a, it was such a jarring night because, you know, Boston got, Kemba Walker back for the first time since the All-Star game after he had knee soreness. And, you know, they, they were finally starting to get healthy. They've been on this great run lately. They've won like 14 of 19. Um, you know, they're up by 15 throughout the game. Everybody's just kind of chilling. And then by the end of the game, Gordon Hayward is out with a knee injury. 
and Jalen Brown is out with a hamstring injury, and Kemba Walker is on a minutes limit and can't play in overtime, and Marcus Smart it fouls out, and all of a sudden the uh, the lineup on the court in overtime for the Celtics in this game like wouldn't be able to beat Bonaventure in a game uh, right now, and you know then they they go from being up by eighteen to losing by ten in overtime. So. It was a weird night on a lot of levels. And, you know, like I said, it was a fun one for the Nets for them to get a win and just a bizarre one for the um, for the Celtics to lose, especially given how well they've been playing for the past few weeks. Let's take a big picture here, Tim. Uh, and maybe we should have started off with this. Uh, Tim Bontemps joining us on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. And uh, Tim is... Uh, he emphasizes the Eastern Conference, so it would be we would be remiss uh, to not get the the view from thirty thousand feet on on the state of the conference right now as we're sixty plus games into the season, um, and and maybe what even last night's game because the it does happen in TD North Garden uh, that it that, that this happens to the Celtics on their home court on the parquet. Um, what, (laughs) what do we learn or uh, what do we know about the Eastern conference as it stands right now with Milwaukee so far ahead of everybody else? But what about the rest of it? I mean, I think what we know right now, to your point is that if the Bucks do everything they're supposed to, they should make the finals and should be the heavy favorites to win the NBA title. And if the Bucks have the same structural flaws in the postseason they've had in the past, their coach, Mike Budenholzer's failures in the playoffs in the past to adjust, uh, the failures of their point guard at Bledsoe to not completely collapse every time he's been in a big moment in the playoffs in the past. Um, you know, can they can their defense, which allows a lot of three point shots, um, hold up over the course of the seven game series against league competition? Um, you know, if if those flaws come to bear, then maybe someone can knock them off. And despite the loss last night for Boston, I think the way their season has gone, I do think they're the team that is best equipped. Um, to potentially beat the Bucks in a seven-game series if they are uh, healthy and, and firing on all cylinders, which they basically have not been all season. Um, but I, I think, you know, in, in terms of looking at the Eastern Conference as a bigger picture, you know, to me it's just the, the playoffs are going to be a complete referendum on Mike Budenholzer and the Bucks. And and from the from those two standpoints that I said, can their supporting cast outside of Chris Middleton step up and play to the level it needs to? And can Mike Budenholzer make the necessary adjustments to be good teams in the playoffs? Because, you know, he's a guy that's proven to be really, really good at having his team play a certain way and win a ton of regular season games. But when they get in the playoffs, whether it's with Atlanta or now with Milwaukee, they run into good competition and he doesn't adjust and they lose. And and so as far as the overall picture, those those are things I think we're gonna have to wait till the playoffs to see, you know, what the answers to those questions are and if Milwaukee's able to do the things that they want to do in order to not only win a title but keep Giannis Antetokounmpo around for the long term. Hey Tim, what do you make of the Sixers? Can they get healthy and get things going and be that contender that a lot of people thought they would be before the season and looked like on Christmas against yeah, Milwaukee? Yeah. And if they don't, you know where are they headed with Joel Embiid, Bill Simmons, Brett Brown? You know where it seems like they're in a real inflection point right now. The answer to that question is very simple, man. Which is is Ben Simmons going to be healthy or not? Uh, and I don't know the answer. If Ben's back is not right, the Sixers have no shot. Uh, if he gets his back right, they at least have a puncher's chance of being good because at their highest level that they've shown a few times this year, like when they beat Milwaukee by a million on Christmas Day and they pounded the Celtics and the Clippers and some of the, and the Lakers, um, they've shown they can beat the best teams in the league. But 
if they're not, if Ben isn't healthy, it, it won't matter because they, they can't get anywhere near um, the high enough level to win, you know, and go deep in the playoffs. The story du jour on Tuesday regarding uh, the Knicks and Spike Lee, um, I guess to just state my intentions right up front, I could care less about, not Spike <laughs> Lee, I think he's a great director and I watch all of his films, but this particular moment in time of Spike Lee being aggrieved, I, I don't care. Uh, you know, right. tough. But it is a fascinating look, and maybe it's, to inside baseball uh, for a bunch of journalists sitting around microphones to thinking about it from a PR standpoint um, and just scratching our heads because we do know intimately how public relations work, how good PR staffs work and bad PR staffs work. And to see this unfold on national television yesterday, statements from the Knicks in which they're poking fun at or at least ripping, uh, uh, I right. guess, uh, their, their most prominent fan who spent millions of dollars on, on these tickets. Um, what's right. your take on the Knicks? And maybe not the Spike Lee aspect, although the Spike Lee, it's just one more feather in the nest. But what's going on with the Knicks? And and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm loading up this question too much, Tim. Um, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll, st I'll stop it's, right no, there. I have a follow-up that yeah. actually pertains to the local Buffalo teams. All right, so the, what's going on with the Knicks is they remain a dumpster fire. And th this is the, the, you know, like you said, it's, no one should care about Spike Lee, right? Like, who cares about um, who cares about whether Spike Lee's feelings are hurt? It doesn't really matter, right? But the reason that it matters is because it continues to prove that the Knicks can't get out of their own way. Like, just let's think back for about forty-eight hours from now, or forty-eight hours ago, right? Leon Rose gets announced as the president of the Knicks, puts out a nice statement saying, "I'm going to stay behind the scenes and I'm going to." Evaluate. We're gonna we're gonna establish relationships with our players, with players around the league again, and we're gonna the Knicks are gonna be a reputable place again, right? Then the Knicks go out Monday night. They beat the Houston Rockets, who two days two, two days before went to Boston and beat the Celtics in one of the best games in the season, right? So really good first twenty four hours for Leon Rose with the Knicks. Then he wakes up Tuesday morning. Spike Lee is on first take, yelling about uh, how terrible the Knicks are. And then the Knicks are putting out statements where uh, there's pictures of James Dolan shaking hands with Spike Lee, and then, they, then Spike Lee's calling the New York Times, and this becomes just a full day of insanity for absolutely no reason other than James Dolan uh, can't ever let a single opportunity to make the Knicks look like a gong show go by the board without immediately seizing on it and saying, we need to do this immediately. So... That's why it matters. It doesn't matter because, like, I don't care what's going on with Spike Lee, and nobody else really does. But it, it does speak to just the utter dysfunction at Two Penn Plaza. And the fact is, until Dolan is willing to either change his tune or sell the team, this is just going to be the same old story there, time after time after time. And the Knicks, who should be one of the biggest and best teams in the NBA, are going to remain a joke. You know, what do you think about the chances? It looks like the Nets are courting Spike Lee's endorsement. If he... He's not going to be, he's not going to go root for the Nets. I mean, all that stuff is nonsense. And, but that's the thing. Like, it's just, it's all, it's all just a complete own goal, right? It's just completely unnecessary for you to start a fight with Spike Lee. Like, what are you, what are you trying to accomplish here? Like, Spike Lee should be able to go wherever the hell he wants. Who cares what entrance he's using? I mean, it's, but but this is the Knicks, though. The Knicks worry about 
the, the Knicks sweat everything that they shouldn't, and they don't sweat anything they should. And this, this is just a perfect encapsulation of that. We're in conversation with ESPN NBA reporter Tim Bontemps on the NCCC. I want to know how you're going to relate the Knicks. I don't mean to step on you, but I want to know how you're going to relate the Knicks back to the local Buffalo teams. I'm well, curious it's a, it goes to a conversation that we had on the show a couple of weeks ago regarding how fans, and in regard to the, the Bills and the Sabres, the Bills not so much, but the Sabres uh, especially so these days, uh, right. Fans had protests out at Alumni Plaza in front of the French Connection statue. Uh, to sell the team, Terry, uh, fire Jason Bottrell, and it was an anemic um, draw. It wasn't like there was a, a, a mass uh, a hysteria or anything like that. But there has been right. a, a big push around here lately about with the fans who are very disappointed and aggravated with the Pagulas as owners. And we were just right. having a conversation as to how much control fans really have. You can say, well, bet with your or uh, vote with your wallet and all these other things. But when it comes to ownership, fans are pretty helpless. And no matter how much fans want James Dolan to sell the team, he's not going to. And so you're stuck with it. And so I guess there was this philosophical discussion. I wanted just to kind of rope it in as to what's a fan to do when they are so embittered by, uh, by ownership. You can't fire the owner. But, but what's the remedy? Yeah, I mean, look, you could go root for another team, right? You could continue to hopelessly root for the Knicks, which so many people that I know continue to do, and just hope and pray that someday Dolan will, uh, you know, will go away in one form or another, and the Knicks could be owned by somebody else. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, you know, Donald Sterling owned the Clippers for 30 years and really it only took a pretty insane series of events for – the NBA to find an excuse to be able to throw him out. And even then they had trouble doing it, but managed to, um, you know, Daniel Snyder has owned the Washington football team for about the same amount of time as Dolan has. Right. Tim, I mean, that's going on two decades that that for generations was one of the biggest teams in the NFL. They've become a laughing stock. Um, you know, ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in sports. And, and sometimes it's one of the biggest competitive disadvantages, depending on, what your ownership situation is. And, you know, we talked about Houston before. Tim Fertitta looks like he's quickly, in my opinion, heading toward being one of the worst owners in the league. The Phoenix Suns were a team that won for generations under Jerry Colangelo, and Robert Sarver bought the team, and they've gone in the tank. So you just go around the league, and, you know, it's, it is the one thing. You're right. Fans, for as much as fans want to say they can do something about it, these teams are worth so much money, and there's so much television money, that no matter how much – you know, stopping a feat that they do, they're not going to make these guys sell. Just a matter of whether they decide they want to. So I guess like Knicks fans could go find some ultra rich billionaire and try to get them to give James Dolan $5 million, $5 billion to buy the Knicks from him. Cause short of that, I think they're probably going to be stuck with them for a really long time. Tim, when it comes to NBA owners, probably the most high profile one, Mark Cuban down in Dallas, they're one of the, surprises in the Western Conference, or maybe not a surprise, but the ascending teams in the Western Conference sure. uh, w- with a former Nick, Kristaps uh, Porzingis. Looking back on the moves they made, the Luka Doncic trade for Trey Young effectively and bringing in Porzingis, you know, what do you think about yep. what they've been able to do to reinvent that team after Dirk's retirement? I mean, look, for, a, for almost a decade, the Mavericks were chasing star after star after star for HC and never got any of them, right? And in the span of eight months, they had traded up for the, the ability to draft Luca, and had traded for Kristaps Porzingis. And 
you know, look, there, there's certainly, especially with Porzingis, some health concerns there, right? Long term, he's a seven three guy. He's already blown out his knee, but if he's healthy, he is the ultimate complementary player for Luka Doncic in terms of style. And I think Luka is the best young player in the NBA, um, and is going to be, you know, in my opinion, a multiple time MVP and a like Hall of Fame level player. So, um, I, I think you all you can do is applaud them for having the willingness to go out and, and get Luca when he should have been the number one pick without a question in last year's draft. Brought him before the draft. It's only been proven ever since. And, you know, Dallas is set up, to your point, as an ascending team in the West and should be good for, you know, the next decade or more as long as they avoid any you know, serious injuries with anybody. What's the possibility that both teams won that Doncic-Young trade? Oh, I think there's a real chance that's true. Um you know, it's hard to do. Usually, news. in this in this binary world, we have to pick a winner and a loser. But oh, exactly. And, and listen, uh, the thing that amuses me about the conversation about that trade is there there are people who mock the Hawks for trading away um, trading away Luka Doncic, right? And, and look, like in a vacuum, would I rather have Luka than Trey? Of course, like I think Luka's better than Trey. I thought that at the time. But if, if you look at the fact that the Phoenix Suns had the first pick and took DeAndre Ayton. You look at the, the fact that the Sacramento Kings had the second pick and took Marvin Bagley, who has basically been hurt ever since he's been in the league. When he has been in the league, he stunk. He's been on the court. And you, you, if you want to look at those teams and then try to tell me that the, the Hawks messed up by getting another first-round pick and drafting Trey Young, who's the second-best player in his draft class, like uh, you're not going to get me to say that. So – you know, would I rather be on the, the Dallas side of that ledger? Yes. Would I say Dallas, like, in a vacuum, did Dallas win that trade? Yes. But do I think that the Hawks messed up that draft? No, absolutely not. I think the Hawks got a great player who's going to be the hub of a great offense for a long time. And if he improves his defense at all, has a chance to be a guy who can help really drive a lot of winning in Atlanta. And the Hawks did just fine. And to your point, like, for everybody that wants to clown on them, I would point them to Phoenix and Sacramento and say – those are the teams you should be clowning on, not Atlanta. Who do you think, in, in comparing Trey Young to Luka Doncic, is the more marketable star player? Um, I would say probably Trey, just because he's American, um, and also he has a little bit more flashier moves. Like from a marketing standpoint, he kind of reminds me of Kyrie Irving, right? Who mm-hmm. there are a lot of guys better than Kyrie, but there's a few guys more marketable. I don't really give a crap about who's more marketable. But that seemed like maybe that factored into what the Hawks did in that trade. I think. No, I don't think so. I mean, I know so. Like they, there were there were some concerns going into the draft about Luca's uh, work ethic and um, his conditioning. I mean, he he was a pretty hefty guy uh, when he got drafted. Um, so and, and you know, so there were there were concerns about that. And look, Trey, uh, from a model perspective, like from an analytical perspective, Trey broke every model last year. Um, so that was why they, they drafted him. It wasn't, I mean, there was talk from, like, I would say uninformed people that they drafted him because they thought he could, like, sell more tickets. But yeah, I think the Migos that's not why it. they, I mean, sure. But that, that's not why the Hawks, uh, that's not why the Hawks made the trade. Um, they, they made it because they thought, their, their bet essentially was, look, in a vacuum, we probably would take Luca over Trey but we think they're basically even, and we can also get another top 10 pick out of it, which is exactly what happened. So, look, if Cam Reddish becomes, let's say Cam Reddish becomes a really good wing player in the NBA, and you get Trey Young and Cam Reddish for Luka Doncic. Well, and that trade is, at worst, 
looking pretty good for Atlanta, right? So that that was really the bet they made was that we think that the difference between Trey and Luca is less than the difference between having another first round pick. So, you know, time will tell if they're right, but I still would say that they uh, they did a hell of a lot better than the teams picking one and two in that draft. Did. Time for a quick one before you board your plane here, Tim. Yes, absolutely. All right, last, last one for you, I promise. Um, sure. I, I think it's a fascinating discussion because of the time missed, but um, Zion Williamson and his chance to win Rookie of the Year, I think a lot of people look at it and might say philosophically, or I guess on principle, no, but come on. Uh, so I get, where are you on this? Yeah, I think John Morant is the Rookie of the Year for sure. Uh, no offense to Zion, who has been great. Uh, he's played 12 games. Um, I'm really getting fed up with people trying to tell me that uh, you have to give Zion uh, some kind of respect in this Rookie of the Year race. Fed like, up. I, I don't know. Well, is the award the Rookie of the Year award, or is the award here's the player we think is going to be the best player in the draft class in 10 years? Like, Because uh, that's the argument I keep hearing. Well, Zion's, Zion's a better prospect. Like, okay, I don't really care if Zion's a better prospect. Uh, it's the Rookie of the Year award. So I'm going to pick uh, the guy who I think has had the best year. And I don't know, one of these guys has played four times as many minutes as the other guy. And one guy is having one of the best rookie seasons ever for a guard. It's been awesome. Uh, and the other guy is great and has played great, but he's played 13 games or 15 games. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I just don't, I just don't see, I just don't see the merit in the argument, really. I mean, for as good as Zion is going to be, if this was if this was like like I I didn't I didn't, I did not vote for Joel Embiid uh, when Malcolm Brogdon won Rookie of the Year, but if this was a Malcolm Brogdon situation where you had a guy averaging nine points a game or ten points a game who was leading the Rookie of the Year race, I could maybe see the argument to um, to pick Zion just given how good he's been. But John Morant has been like a historically great rookie guard. So we're not talking about some like bum that's just accumulating some counting stats. Uh, we're talking about a guy that's killing people and had like fringe all-star consideration as a rookie guard three weeks ago. So now we're just going to forget that because Zion has come back and dumped some. Like, you know, and none of this is to criticize Zion. He's been awesome, but like, I just uh, he's played twelve games. Like at some point, we need to consider the fact that you know availability is an actual skill, and that for him has been an F so far. Tim Bontemps, thanks so much for cramming us into your afternoon here. I know you're a busy guy. And where, what's the next game? Where are you headed to? Uh, next game for me is Friday in uh, in Boston against the Utah Jazz. All right, exciting game. Tim, you following the Randolph Cardinals through their sectional? Yes, run? sir. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm hoping to get up to watch the Cardinals next. Uh, I think next Friday. I want to say. So he's oh. playing up in Buffalo. Oh, yeah, be yeah, that that'll game. be a big game. Tyler well, Hind, all-time three-point king in You West let us know when you're in town so we can uh, celebrate. Hey, listen, I, if I, I, I'm pretty – Jonah would know this, I think. I'm pretty confident the C title game is next Friday in Buffalo. And if that, if that is the case, I am planning on – I have to cover uh, Bucks Celtics in Milwaukee next Thursday. I'm going to fly from Milwaukee to Buffalo, and I'm going to that game for sure. Damn, I got to see Tyler play. Damn, that's impressive. That's 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 a testament to all being you know proud of your school. What's, impo- 
What's well, I'm proud of Tyler Hyde. I don't know, real quick, I don't know if people know his story, but he was born with a, a cleft foot and he had probably he's probably had a hundred procedures on it and he still even has you could tell when he plays now, even still it's sore for him to get around. But the guy has scored, I think I mean Jonah knows closer to me, but he's getting real close to passing Dominic Welch's all time Western New York record, past Joe Lakata's three point record, all time points record. Uh he passed Joe Lakata's all time three point record. And he's an awesome kid. And he's my high school coach's son, and I've known him since he was born. So I'm super proud of him. He's going to Damon next year, playing for Mike McDonald, another Bonaventure guy. And uh, I want to go, got to go support him and the guys. Hopefully they go on to win states. So I will, uh, I will be there next Friday. We just hit basketball on all levels. Yeah, I'm impressed with Tim's. We had St. Bonaventure references. We had Damon. We have high schools. We have the NBA. This was a comprehensive spot by Tim Bontemps. That's what the Thunderwolves hotline is all about. That's right. That's what I do for you, Tim Graham. (laughs) Well, I hope to see you next week then. I I told you. I'm going to be in town. All right, I'll uh, find you. If you're around, let's do it. I'll find you. All right, safe travels, Tim. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate you having me on. That was Tim Bontemps from ESPN on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. Come be a part of a winning team at Niagara County Community College. When we come back, more Bills and Sabres talk, and uh, who knows what else on the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by CTBK. Graham Show. Yes, I do have mnemonic devices that the will Tim have. Graham Show. Prominent, prominent listener sent uh, this gift to me. I will have a big unveiling. Jim Brown's I'll still a free agent. This is Sports Radio 1270, The Fan. Maybe we need to come up with a segment because you always call in with things that are rather pointed and make you think. Make you think. So maybe like Frank's complaints. Complaints. What's her name? Frank's complaints. I like that. Welcome back to the Tim Graham Show brought to you by CTBK here on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan. Frank and Williamsville is on the line. Tim. Bring us home, Frank. It's been a long time, and I've been on since uh, you had the angry Howard Stern guy on. Right. If you, yeah, it's been a while. Um, I got some t- Sabres and Bills stuff, okay? What do you got? Um, start with the Sabres first, all right? I like, I, like, I, I like Ralph. I think he gets the guys to play. They seem to skate and play hard, but they just can't score. And they're, they're the most mental team I've ever seen, as far as like, um, just not, not playing for five minutes and letting the other team score four goals out of them, you know? Yeah, that's that's below. That's uh, less than desirable. It's strange. Um, as far as the Bills, I'm wondering: do you see anybody that can actually catch the ball out there at the combine? Well, we don't see anything out there uh, that you don't see on television. Unfortunately, that's one of the big myths of the combine: is uh, the media that we go out there and cover it as though we get inside uh, info. It's it's um, well, we get inside info, but to actually see the uh, the workouts is a relatively newer development, uh, whatever they show on TV. But it used to be, prior to the NFL Network showing the workouts, we got nothing. And then there was one year that they let us go in and watch the quarterbacks and receivers, but then the very next year they op- they started broadcasting it. So, right. anyways, we didn't see I'm anything that a- uh, you wouldn't have seen on the NFL Network. I'm seeing it's in the nature to trade down. Get 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 a couple more players for that pick. Get somebody. They're so. It seems to me they're so keyed in on the philosophy of the player and how he's going to fit 
into the team and the chemistry. So I think they're going to look for a particular guy, especially somebody who can catch the ball. I just think that it seems to me the Bills receivers drop more passes than other teams. I could be wrong. I don't have any stats to back that up. But just maybe just Josh Allen just throws a hard ball that they can't catch. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, he's, uh, you know, you can think of all the different kinds of drops uh, last year. I, I'm thinking uh, later in the season, uh, Frank Gore had a big drop, right, on a on a swing yeah. pass out of the backfield because Josh Allen uh, has only one speed. Do you have some stats right. here, Matt? The Buffalo Bills receivers dropped 6.7% of Josh Allen's passes this season. That was the highest drop rate in the NFL. There, there you, you go. go. Frank is yeah. uh, astute. Maybe he's he's uh I think he's bluffing. I think he does have the stats in front of him. He, he's he's testing us. He's making it seem like he's just pulling this off the top of his head. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever hear the term in baseball? He throws a heavy ball. Sure. The pitcher like the catcher catches the ball, he actually it feels like he, it just hurts more than the other guys. It's got more it might have For hockey to too, a heavy shot. Strength. You know, you think heavy about those shot. defensemen uh with those one timers on a power play, he's got a heavy shot. Al McKinnis. Oh, he absolutely. had a heavy shot. And I think Allen throws a ball. Maybe he throws a tip point down or something, but it seems like it's a heavy, hard-to-catch ball. And, and, and I think they're looking for guys who got really good hands um, to make them, you know, they got to give Josh all they can give him and make him the best he can be. Frank, we only have a couple of minutes, but uh, do you have a wish list for free agency? I know we were just talking about the draft and maybe trading back, but uh, um, what, uh, what about free agency? I'm not sure, honestly. Um, I, I really don't know who's available. I, I, you know, I, I watched Damn it, Frank. I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. I'm not going to lie. I don't, I'm proving I don't have staff in front of me. I keep seeing I, Austin I, Cooper's name come up, and I think that's just because Austin Cooper is maybe the you most mean coveted. Amari Cooper or Austin Hooper? Or, I'm sorry. Both are available. <laughs> Amari Cooper and Austin Hooper. And I do know who these people are because I interviewed both of them at the Pro Bowl. Amari Cooper. I'm sorry. I'll, let me say that again. Amari Cooper, I keep seeing his name mentioned as the Bills should go out and get him, and probably because he's the most prominent receiver on the market. Well, that's because Kyle Brandt from the NFL Network, didn't he go on a little bit of a rant about it? Yeah, that's part, he's yeah. He's a bit of a Bills home. He's got people in my, you know, he, he uh, yes. But I talked to Amari Cooper at the Pro Bowl. He says he pretty much said he has no interest in playing anywhere that's not warm. He's been yeah. he's been his whole career like playing in climate controlled places, and he's pretty much laughed at the idea of going to Buffalo. So, I mean, I know that that's anecdotal, but that's a pretty heavy anecdote. Speaking no, it's of heavy, not really anecdotal. <laughs> it's right from the source. Well, but he could be swayed, obviously, by, by money or his money. agent or whatever. But uh, at that time, he was like, eh. Yeah, a lot of guys say, I'm not going to go play in Buffalo, and then it's like, the agent calls, and it's like, hey, one team is way above the rest. All right, yeah, when you put it that way. The Bills are also the type of team that will not go way above the rest, because that's Brandon Bean's philosophy, is not to overpay, and he has told me that if he gets into a if there's a situation where there's a bidding war and it takes them a little out of their comfort zone, yeah, he could see it just to beat out another team because of a guy they really want, but they're not going to overpay by a but lot. But sometimes it's like Micah Hyde where not a lot of teams wanted Micah Hyde or at least didn't want him as bad as the Bills did. Right. And so I'm sure he was probably like, man, I've been in Green Bay my whole career. It'd be nice to get somewhere warm. And then his agent calls and is like, yeah, the best offer is definitely Buffalo. Well, guess I'm going to Buffalo. You know, get 
And I think Amari, Amari Cooper, Cooper is going to have, have a lot of a lot of. There will be a bidding yes. war for Amari Cooper if he even hits the market. Well, Frank, thanks for your patience today. Always good to talk with you. Let's get back in the ro- in the in the habit of uh, hearing uh, hearing from you, huh? I got a, a potential topic for another show. When I think about the Sabers, okay, like they come out saying that they they've got to win ten games in a row, or they got you know how many games can they lose and, and still be in the playoffs? Instead of just thinking about the one game that they have to play that night, and I'm wondering, even maybe with the Bills as well, is this hard for teams to play in Boston because we got such a, a devoted fan base and there's so much scrutiny on the teams and. I don't know. These guys have no anonymity when they're driving around town. It's, a, it's like that in a lot of places, though. Not every place, but it's like that in a lot of places. And maybe less so in hockey. I think, you know, uh, you probably, if you're a New York Ranger, you probably don't get recognized a ton. Or if you're a, I don't know, if you're a St. Louis Blue, I don't know how what it's like uh, there. I bet you yeah, do you get think St. Louis? There. Yeah, especially with yeah. no NFL team there Small anymore. Town, but, no NFL team. Yeah, but care. anywhere in the South, they probably have no idea who you are. Florida, Dallas. There's not so much going on like Buffalo. I think right. it might be just more emphasis on the, on, the, on the teams that they feel the pressure. I don't know, but when they said they had to win all four games on that road trip and they didn't win one of them. Didn't even get a I mean, point. Win, yeah, get, get, win one game. You can't win the whole season in, in, in one night. You can't, you know, like, can't hit a whatever. All right. I just think that the- Great to hear from you, Frank. Yeah. We got to run. We're at the top of the hour, and uh, always good to hear from you. My thanks to Megan O'Brien and Tim Bontemps for calling in on the NCCC Thunderwolves hotline. My thanks to Matthew Fairburn and Jonah Bronstein for being in studio as always, and Bobby Rosati for getting us through another show. Uh, we'll talk to you again uh, next week right here. On the Tim Graham Show, brought to you by Shampoo Travis Visa and Kirshner, CPAs and business consultants on Sports Radio 1270 The Fan.